1: Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR.
0: Rust is my blood. Stardust is my soul. And you are the blood of my soul, Khalil. The back of the tongue taking a trip to the front of the palate to Ululate, at one on the teeth. You come tearing through your mother and into this universe like Zamzam water which sprung from the desert of your ancestors. Khalil. You are thrown into your mother's frail and freckled and fair arms, arjin against arjin, Doe against dough. That's an excerpt from Michael Mohammed Ahmed's The Other Half of You. The story follows Bunny Adams, a young man caught between the desire to meet his family's expectations and following his own inclinations and desires. A second-generation Australian from a tight-knit Shia Muslim community, the pressures to continue his family line and traditions is strong. But hard as he tries to live and love the way his family expects, Bani has started down his own path, one destined to weave the tortuous road through conflicting spheres of influence. Years later, he would try to make sense of it all by explaining it to his own son, Khalil. Michael Mohammed Ahmed's The Other Half of You picks up the threads of his Miles Franklin Award shortlisted coming of age novel, The Lebs, following Banny as he grapples with the complex layers of oppressive traditions, internalised racism, and a desire to forge his own path between them all.
1: Triple R on FM Digital Online via the app.
0: Mohammed Ahmed joins me now to talk about his book and the craft behind it. Mohammed, welcome to Backstory.
1: Thank you for having me, and salamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors.
0: And to you too. I'm really delighted, actually, to be able to have you on, because we did uh, get to chat about The labs, and it is was one of my favourite interviews, I have to say. Uh, we really got into some of the real complexities that you explore in that novel, uh, and it is kind of a really interesting thing to do, I guess, as an author, to set out to create a book that can very much stand on its own, but that kind of reach... Into a cosmology that you've created already. I'd love you to sort of set off talking about your decision to sort of link it to, to the labs.
1: Um, yeah, thank you for that question and for framing it that way. I'd also say thank you for that beautiful introduction. I'm really honoured and flattered with the way you framed my book. Um, what I would say is that I think um, I, whether I intended to do this or not, over the last decade, literally the last decade, I've been kind of creating an arc of the experience of being an Arab-Australian Muslim man. Um, and so the first novel I wrote was called The Tribe, and it was written from the perspective of a small boy uh, who was an autobiographical version of myself, um, you know, navigating the space of an Arab-Australian Muslim home from from the point of view of a, of a little boy. And then when, when I wrote The Lebs, I just organically went to the next uh, stage in that boy's life. I, I wrote a novel, again, a standalone novel, so it didn't, you didn't need to read the tribe. But when I wrote the Lebs, the idea would be that I would explore the experience of being a teenager um, and coming from this identity. And that was particularly important because it just so happened that when I was a teenager, um, the September 11 attacks took place, the 2005 Kerala riots um, uh, took place, and so these were very pivotal moments for young Arab Muslim men. Uh, growing up in Sydney's West. And so then the, the natural and organic um, next stage was to look at the experience of being a man, being an adult, uh, during this pivotal moment in time. And so that's the, that was just the next story I had to tell as an, as an Arab Australian Muslim male writer. And so I wrote from the point of view of being a grown-up now and, and communicating to the next generation
0: yeah one of the things I guess i mean situating it at these real flashpoints in history as well obviously they 're ones that you 've lived through so it's not it 's done because this is literally your experience as well as that of your characters um, does kind of really give this uh, a, a much and much needed perspective in Australian culture that unfortunately has been uh, you know under you know, under-examined and is increasingly one that uh, that we're starting to see more of. We're starting to see more complexity in the conversations about, um, you know, what it is to be someone who lives on, on this stolen land that we all have, uh, you know, responsibility for. But what I particularly love about your books is that you really dive into the specificity of the experience. There is none of the, you know, softening of the edges, you're leaning right into everything, no matter how harshly it might reflect upon a given experience. Talk to me a little bit about that. I I remember reading, I think Christos Solkis saying something like, I don't, I didn't want to write polite books, because what I wanted to say was not polite. But I think it goes beyond simply say, the harshness of some language use um, or the you know, casual use of um, derogatory terms in certain instances, I think you're really leaning into this idea of just showing things as they are, but within a kind of community in all its complexity and in all its flaws.
1: Yeah, thank you for that uh, sophisticated question. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there. The first thing I'll talk about is uh, the responsibility of the kinds of narratives that we are writing minority writers in Australia. Uh, writing at the moment, uh, the, the, the kind of burden that we carry. So what I would say is, uh, in very recent history, so I'm not talking about the last 20 or 30 years, there's a lot to talk about, but just recently, you know, in 2019, an Australian-born white supremacist walks into two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, and slaughters 51 Muslims peacefully conducting their Friday prayers. Um, you know, we are very fast approaching the 20-year anniversary of the September 11 attacks, and there's always a spike in um, in incidents of Islamophobic behaviour around the, you know, every year around the September 11, uh, around the anniversary of the September 11 attacks. So I think creating humanising and complex portrayals of Arab and Muslim communities um, is incredibly important in, in, in art forms like literature, because they actively serve the purpose of trying to counteract So much of the negative imagery that literally can ruin and destroy many muslims lives and arab lives so that's the first point i'll make now in response to um how i tell those stories and you know picking up on the point you made about christos's work um look i I totally agree that uh you know our responsibilities as storytellers are not to tell necessarily positive stories to counteract negativity Um, The reality of my experience as an Arab Muslim man growing up in Western Sydney is that there was a lot of violence, misogyny, homophobia, racism that was playing out in my own community, and I never, ever shy away from that or make excuses for that. Um, But what I try to do, um, instead of playing the negative versus positive dichotomy... What I try to do is I try to tell a complex and humanizing story, a three-dimensional story, which ultimately shows you who these human beings are for all their strengths and weaknesses. And I, I generally hope that, you know, you come out the other side of these books having a kind of stronger appreciation of who our community is.
0: Yeah, I absolutely think that that is the case. And it is one of your great talents that you have an ability to, you know, to very much get this visceral feeling of, uh, you know, of your characters. They have such clear and distinct voices. You are painting really clear pictures of both action and dialogue. Um, It's a very, um, you know, you are, you feel as though you know those people. And I think it's painted, you know, very clearly. At the same time, you do kind of play with the faulty narrator. I mean, he, your central character is not—you um, know—he's very flawed. Uh, he's confused. He's conflicted. He changes his mind about how he looks at things. Bunny is the perfect character to see grey areas through. So he really is someone that you—you—you kind uh, of—you—you you kind of. You, you kind of barracking for you want him to sort of work out his own life but you you don't know as a reader which way that will go he doesn't know and so you don't know and I think that's that's a really wonderful way to sort of get the sense of what it's like to be someone living in a as a second generation Australian in a diaspora community I think you really do depict that how was it to write though I'm really interested in that process do you use um you know journals to kind of draw from? How do you get that kind of visceral realness to your writing?
1: Thank you for that question. So firstly, I'll say that the reason why Benny Adam is very flawed is because I'm very flawed. And he is an autobiographical version of myself. And so I, I think it's really important, you know, uh, as writers uh, who are trying to make an, an original contribution to knowledge to find a way to actually lean into exactly who they are and it, to be willing to kind of go to these darker and, in many ways, humiliating places. So um, that is, I appreciate you pointing out that is that is an element of many that I'm very conscious of. I, I never ever want to portray my characters, any of them, but especially the one that's mostly based on me, uh, in a way that makes them uh, flawless or that makes them um, uh, that makes them seem unrealistic in terms of them trying to navigate. Uh, the positive and negative aspects of, of who they are. I think um, in terms of my process and in terms of my craft, uh, I was, uh, very, I'm one of the very few and fortunate people in Australia who has actually had 10 years of university education specifically around literature and creative writing. Uh, I have a doctorate in creative writing. And so I, I, I always need to stress the importance of understanding the craft as a skill that we spend decades learning to master. And, uh, you know, anyone who reads my work will see so many literary references interspersed throughout. In fact, even the excerpt that you read out is actually a reimagining of the, the opening scene of Nabokov's Lolita. So, you know, you would know, having read the book, that Bani is trying to make the language of Lolita safe for his son and that he constantly refers to the beautiful language that Nabokov uses in *The leader, but outside of that predatory uh, gaze that Humber, Humber has. And so the first point I'll make is about craft being a skill that you learn. And then on top of that, I like to blend the skills that I was very fortunate to learn with the experience of just living around thousands of crazy wogs. And I like to think that when you combine the two, you come up with some pretty compelling stories.
0: Yeah, you're coming out, like, throughout, obviously, uh, as you've just raised, this book is littered with literary references and Lolita's just the tip of the iceberg with that. There's many throughout. And I think that's a continuation of, you know, something that the Lebs was, you know, playing around with. It was a preoccupation of Banni's, that Nabokovian sort of idea. But I think you also really do... Do something, You know, there's always a kind of paradoxical commentary in some of the uses or, you know, there's a sort of um, like deliberate sort of knowing use that takes that, that particular reference out of its context. And I really find that very interesting in this book um, and in all your books, because what you talk about and quite openly in the book is also about, you know, the colonisation of... Uh, This young mind by the kind of Western canon, um, the white uh, reading canon, as opposed to kind of really having this more diverse cultural influence when one goes to school. It's really a a choice of swapping one kind of tyrannical tyrannical cultural cultural idea for another. And I guess by doing that, you're sort of decolonizing these elements. And I, I really want to talk a bit about that in your writing. You know, what is your approach to these kinds Mm. of things? How do you kind of consider it? And, you know, I guess you do a lot of work around literacy, particularly promoting writers that are offering perspectives that, you know, new young writers coming up maybe haven't seen and that better reflect them. What kinds of things do you consider when you're creating work like this?
1: Uh, Well, I appreciate that question uh, because it it ties into the broader conversations and the broader... Uh, body of my work, which isn't just about writing my own stories, but supporting members of my community to also be empowered to tell their stories. And so, you know, this is largely, this idea is largely framed around um, the literacy movement that I kicked off uh, in Western Sydney called Sweatshop. Um, And, you know, we built the literacy movement on many of the black civil rights um, ideas around literacy that were uh, being... um, being formulated, uh, you know, in the, uh, since the 1960s, uh, you know, the, the Black Panthers used to have uh, school programs and writing programs to support the, the marginalized kids in their neighborhoods. And, you know, the, the uh, African-American cultural theorist Bill Hooks argues that all steps towards freedom and justice in any culture are always dependent on mass-based literacy movements because degrees of literacy will determine how you see what you see. And so when I um, approach my writing, I try to bring that kind of critical consciousness into my work. And, of course, Bani, as a narrator, is a critical thinker. And so he's oftentimes drawing from the, uh, the European and the literary canon, mainly because it's the, it's the literature that he studies in his undergraduate degree. So that's where he turns to for wisdom and advice. But at the same time, um, he develops that kind of critical awareness later on that begins to help him connect with other forms of literature and other um, other ways of imagining reality, including, most importantly, the the literature that comes from his own diaspora. The you know the the literature of the Arab poets and storytellers like Khalil Gibran, who of course he affectionately named his son after, um, and uh, and uh, you know who draws a lot of reference um, from uh, the, the Arab world, Romeo and Juliet, um, a, a very famous. Uh, a
0: story called Layla and Majnun. Yeah, I I think um, I mean I'm tempted to ask you. I want to really delve more into the book, but to talk about this kind of aspect of it in in the context of you know, and of course, you spent a great deal of your adult life in in the university system. Do you feel as though there is even close to a, a kind of cultural shift in in terms of what is taught um, as Australian literature? Do you think that, you know, the gains that we've made in recent years in terms of better representation or growing representation, let's, let's not kind of overstate things. Um, but, you know, do you feel as though there is a genuine movement um, towards kind of readdress, uh, reassessing what literature is, particularly what literature is in our context? Those kinds of things, is there a move? Yeah, it's
1: a, look, it's a fantastic question. And what I would say is um, yes and no. Um, the answer, the reason I say yes, firstly, is because I do think it's really important to recognize and celebrate the tremendous progress that has been made. And, you know, just this year, uh, I, I, if you ask me to list some of the incredible books that have been published, I only would name, you know, without, without you know, trying, like I, I wouldn't go out of my way to do this. It would just happen on its own that I would only really name culturally and linguistically diverse and indigenous writers as my top list of books. I, I, I'd love to take the opportunity to name some, but, you know, Randa Abdel fattahs uh, Coming of Age in the War on Terror, uh, Amani Haidob's The Mother Wound, uh, Sari El-Sayed, who just released her book, Muddy People. Yesterday, in fact, it was released. Um, Alice Kung's book, 100 Days, which has a lot of resonance um, with my book because it's about, you know, the older generation of uh, of diasporic communities speaking to their children. Um, and, you know, um, my dear friend Claire G. Coleman, whose book, uh, Lies, Damn Lies, um, has just been released. And so we are seeing this tremendous shift and this uh, tremendous focus on more diverse literature, not, as a, not, not over the last 10 years or 20 years, but literally in the last couple of months, we can see this, this trend. But, but the reason why I also say no is because I really think that transformation and empowerment is a process, not an event. And so the minute we drop the ball on this, the minute we say everything's fixed now, uh, we don't have to worry. Um, things tend to go back to the way they were. And this is, uh, not just, doesn't just apply to conversations about race. I think it applies to conversations about sexuality and, and gender and class as well. We always have to be diligent in making sure that the next generation is empowered to take up the struggle. And, um, and of course there's so much more work to do. The representation of diverse communities in literature and other art forms is still m- m- pretty low in Australia. And so, what I would say is that we keep putting pressure on the industry to support diverse voices as a as a as a, a direct intervention in addressing the diversity issue.
0: Yeah, one of the you know the really important things that I think is is really filtering through into the public consciousness more and more is that getting this richness of experience really adds to literature. I mean, you're not getting thin kind of characterizations of people you're getting added complexity and specificity and so the more you do that the more the reader gets and I think that as a as readers of all sorts are demanding this kind of level of complexity. I do want to pick that up with regard to your book. Um, Particularly, we had off air a small um, conversation about this coming from a mixed race background myself. um, I'm always kind of delighted to see representations that get into these kind of muddy areas of of race and culture because I am from that um, confusing background Uh, and it is rare and something that I've value when I find it. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? Because uh, your central character who is kind of stepping into a world um, where ultimately it's going to lead to having a child that is very much the definition of a kind of mixed race kid from, from different, different influences, what were you thinking about when you were trying to kind of delve into these kind of complex areas of, of culture and race and what do you think that they ultimately convey to the reader? Because I think that, in a way, the lebs ended on much more of a sort of note of trying to kind of go back to, to re-associate with one's roots. And this is taking them and evolving them in a way that I find really interesting.
1: Yeah, um, thank you for that. I think that um, the lebs ends on quite a, uh, a sad note. And, you know, it ends with a lot of confusion um, and a lot of reconciliation that Benny needs to go through. Uh, Whereas I feel like this book, which is kind of like Benny, um, you know, coming to terms with his adulthood and coming to terms with who he is going to be as a father, uh, really does come, you know, end on a very hopeful note. And, you know, it's called The Other Half of You, but in many ways, the book is about becoming whole, you know, and, and finding all those pieces and components that make us complete as human beings. What I would say in response directly to your question is, firstly... Um, in, in, in terms of conversation about, you know, mixed-race identity, so uh, it's no secret, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of on the public record that, yeah, my son is mixed-race, he's got an Anglo-Australian mother and an Arab-Australian Muslim father. And um, I, I gave that, I, I write in the form called autobiographical fiction, so all of my characters, including me, are, are fictionalised versions of real people that I know. But my son, Khalil, I, he's in the book, I just gave him his real name, Khalil, because I don't really know, firstly, if um, I can uh, actually imagine my son in a fictional way. And so I, I just couldn't bear the thought of giving him a fictional name. Um, and I also was literally addressing him. I, I, it's, a, it's a book that's kind of trying to prepare him for the world that he has to navigate one day as a mixed-race um, member of, an, of, you know, of Australia, and I think the world that our children are about to inherit is not necessarily going to be a pretty one. Um, the conversations that we are trying to have right now about uh, climate change, about, I mean, obviously, global pandemics, about, um, uh, you know, about racism, about uh, issues like domestic violence, I mean, these are huge issues that the next generation are going to inherit. And I, um, I, I feel like uh, a lot of uh, diverse writers, are always trying to communicate to the next generation. The best example I can give in recent uh, in recent memory is um Ta-Nehisi Coates Between the World and Me, mm. where he addresses his African-American son. And so, the you know, I, I really feel like I explicitly try to tell this story in the hope that it empowers the next generation, a generation of of kids who I generally think are going to be a lot more eclectic and, you know, are going to be a lot more mixed in terms of their identities as we get, you know, as a globalised Australian community, get closer to each other. I also want to make one more point. This is the most important point I think I can make in this entire interview. I feel like the last couple of years have been incredibly difficult and painful for for people all over the world, but especially for minorities, especially for Indigenous people and black communities and people of colour. Um, and you know, uh, in the context of COVID, we've seen a huge rise in anti-Asian violence. Um, last year, we saw tremendous pressure being put on the Australian government and on the Australian people to reflect more seriously on the mistreatment of Indigenous people, particularly um, in the in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I already mentioned the horrible tragedy that took place in Christchurch, and so you know, these these incidents they reveal that we are a very very divided at the moment we are not uh, communities that are generally getting along and that where there's general general love and connection we're feeling so much hate um, and discrimination and so I really wanted to tell this book as an interracial intercultural interfaith love story because I actually am an optimistic person and I did want to talk, talk about uh, ways that we can start coming together and that we can start loving each other again and, and being united as, a, um, as people.
0: But you've also captured, and this is something I've experienced in my own family, that very real pressure from a, particularly a minority group um, background um, in diaspora that has had to hold on... <laughs> Um, so strongly to their traditions in order to keep a sense of who they are alive. That's been so embedded in the culture that you describe. It's certainly something that I've experienced. Um, and the act of stepping outside of that feels so frightening to the people around around you. And you have really, you know, that responsibility that I guess has been placed on people to feel as though that they are letting, you know, not just their family down, but generations of their family before them down by by doing something to step outside of that. And there is certainly, you know, an understandable quality to that um, to that need to sort of keep traditions, to keep a sense of the community together. How, you know, how you balance that in this does, you know, you're not kind of um, stepping back from that feeling of, that, you know, there is something that you lose as well when you gain something else. Mm. Yeah. Can you talk about that yeah. side of it? Because I, I haven't, you know, there are books that explore some of these things, but I think this, again, it really, it, you know, it really hit me at home reading about this.
1: Thank you. Um, So, yeah, uh, I I, I really appreciate that question. It's the first time I get a chance to talk about this. Uh, It's a very famous phenomenon that's, that's very well documented. In fact, what the research shows is that diasporic communities tend to hold on to old traditions even more than the communities back home. You know, so, um, you know, communities in Lebanon, where my family are from, Lebanon and Syria, they tend to move forward. But what happens is, you know, our parents and grandparents migrate to Australia and they're so afraid of losing connection to the, to the motherland that they hang on to these old values that even people in their own countries would not necessarily still believe or practice, you know. Um, and so you can kind of get stunted uh, as a diasporic community living in a white settler colonial society. Um, And so what I like to talk about when I talk about um, that idea of tradition versus change is that there is a way, I believe, to respect tradition without being a slave to it. And I think in the other half of you, you see with Bani constantly at this war between maintaining and respecting these old Muslim and Arab social and cultural values that he's been taught, while at the same time trying to adopt new ways of thinking and imagining reality and somehow trying to find a middle ground. And really, I, I won't spoil it, but that is literally the book. I think the book is about trying to somehow navigate these two identities, these two conflicting experiences of being being Arab and being Australian simultaneously. And what I would like to assure the listeners, anybody who does me the honour of reading the book, is that I think you'll be satisfied with the conclusion. I think you'll be pleased with where Banya ends up, with where... Um, you know, the people in his family, in his community, and the people that he loved, including his son, where they all end up, where this story takes you.
0: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. Mohammed, thank you so much uh, for the already quite uh, amazingly interesting conversation we've already had. I want to delve even more into some of the the elements in the book. I think that that one of the things that uh, you don't shy away from is this idea of internalized patriarchy and misogyny that is a kind of enculturated part of where the central character comes from, and I don't just mean his own community, but the broader community that we all suffer under. Um, Struggling to sort of see women beyond their archetypes is really something that Banny is really focused on, and that is often something that he kind of, you know, doesn't always get quite right, but is constantly sort of seeking an answer to. Can you talk about this? Because I think that this is a really, you know, important element when we're looking at, at, you know, under... Looking at the the way toxic masculinity or uber masculinity kind of affects young men, and you certainly do show the impact of that.
1: Yeah, um, thank you for that question. So the first thing I will say, because uh, I get uh, you know I get asked a lot about the 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 the, the, the way that gender is framed in my work, um, not just with this book, but with uh, books like The Leb. And, you know, what I would say, firstly, which is really important to take notice of, is that I speak from the perspective of a man. You know, that's not something I can, I can actually change. Uh, you know, I'm an uh, Arab-Australian Muslim man who grew up in Western Sydney. And so there's a particular kind of way of thinking. There's a, a particular kind of perfor- gender performance that is very specific to my identity that I intentionally delve into. But, you know, I, I never, ever pretend that I'm speaking on behalf of women like there's the claim is never like this is what i think women are or what they are like it's more like a way of saying this is how you know gender is seen through the perspective of a young arab muslim man in western sydney this is a very specific lens and as you pointed out there, I, I do delve as far as i can into conversations about patriarchy, and misogyny and sexism that play out both in that is, immediate community and, and then also the broader uh, Australian society, uh, including the way white male patriarchy uh, informs so much of the, of the issues that I'm exploring. Uh, one, thing I, one distinction I'll make that I think is very important and, uh, you know, in the previous, uh, you know, in our earlier conversation, I was talking about the African-American cultural theorist, Bill Hooks. And uh, one uh, point that Bill Hooks uh, makes about uh, patriarchy, which is, of course, one of the, the leading areas that she explores, um, is the importance of when you're talking about men of colour, differentiating between patriarchy and masculinity. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of men who are very masculine. You know, they're loud, they're, they're big, they're hairy, they're dark. Um, but they are not patriarchal. They can actually be quite gentle and quite loving and quite feminist in their politics. Um, And at the same time, you can meet a lot of men who are incredibly feminine in terms of the way they perform their gender. Uh, whilst at the same time are able to assert a type of patriarchy that is incredibly toxic. And Bill Hooks calls that particular kind of patriarchy benevolent patriarchy. And so one of the things I try to do in my work in, in explicitly and intentionally is create a very clear distinction between a type of beautiful masculinity that is common among men of colour and specifically Arab and Muslim men and a type of very, very toxic and very, very dangerous patriarchy that infects and and damages not just the lives of women, but damages and destroys the lives of the men in the community. And I feel like, you know, you can actually explore both at at the same time and and be able to see the differences and be able to celebrate one whilst also distancing yourself from the other.
0: Absolutely. Um, And we can't forget that one is a system of power like white supremacy obviously and and you know you do really very much color that in terms of how those structures have worked for certain characters over others um you know where it is just as much of a trap for young men as it is for women uh, in you know in many contexts the difference between that idea of masculinity and toxic masculinity and I think that is something that banning is obviously really struggling with um, trying to work out and define and I think there is an honesty to that in a way that these more sublimated forms you talk about this kind of you know uh, the sort of wokeness over un, you know the undercover sort of paternalism or like patriarchy or toxic masculinity hidden by um, you know politeness or forms that you know, uh, that don't allow us to see these systems of power in place?
1: Um, It's interesting, I mean, framing it around the conversation around wokeness. I've been wanting to share this um, knowledge that I have for a very long time, and so I'd like to take that a quick opportunity to talk about this. I feel like in the last couple of months, you know, maybe the last couple of years, but especially this year, you know, there's such a kind of... Like, the word woke is becoming a very, very dirty word, you know? It's it's becoming... (laughs) Very heavily affiliated with uh, this fantasy of uh, like a kind of you know cultural bullies who are canceling everything. But I, what I would really like to remind people, who, uh, especially people who just literally woke up one day and heard and started hearing the word woke being spread in popular discourse, what I think is really important to know is the term woke is quite new, but the idea is not new, it's actually. Uh, It used to be called in cultural theory terms like uh, critical consciousness and being an enlightened witness. And we look at figures like Malcolm X, who talks about how he became an enlightened witness through his intellectual development while he was in jail because he was reading and he was reading extensively. And he talks about how a whole new world opened up to him. And I I don't really like because I feel like the word woke has been very heavily um, demonized in the last uh, couple of years. I actually prefer to use terms like enlightened witness and critical consciousness to talk about the ways in which, you know, through literature we can address issues of, you know, misogyny, patriarchy, sexism, white supremacy, imperialism, colonialism and homophobia.
0: Yeah, it's not about necessarily always having the right words either. And I think that there's this idea, I think, as you say, the, the idea of wokeness um, has become tainted in no small part because it's, there's a level of presumed hypocrisy in some instances. And I think that that is one of the issues around maybe thinking about the substance of what people are trying to get across and having complexity or allowing complexity, allowing you know multitudes of perspectives that, that really challenge an issue and for us to kind of not be afraid to sort of try with the best of intentions to go there even if we don't always hit on the right path i think getting these kinds of ideas out there is only helpful because again you know being a critical witness i think if i'm not getting that wrong is to sort of really be also self-critical and to think about how you're approaching things and challenge challenge those things not just to kind of say i say this word now and that's going to that's going to fix everything often those words will hide a multitude of new sins
1: yeah i mean i I totally agree and i totally um Uh, like see your points um and so the other thing i would love to add which i think we'll we'll get to probably a little bit more deeply is um the the importance of reading literature from diasporic communities in australia and and, you know i'm talking about this within the framing of the discussion we're having about critical consciousness uh that doesn't necessarily conflate the author with the character i think there's an assumption that all you know, um, migrant and indigenous literature in Australia is inherently autobiographical and in that, like, I'm just revealing all of my idiotic um, uh, thoughts and ideas without realising that I'm a very self-aware writer and that in, in many ways I use Banny as my autobiographical fictional alter ego in order to address important social issues that in, in many ways might reinforce you know misogynistic thinking or might reinforce homophobic thinking but that's not because i am homophobic or misogynistic necessarily it's because i'm trying to talk about that and i'm using this character and some you know problematic thoughts he's having to try and have a discussion with my reader about these issues
0: Yeah. And on that note, to to talk about how you are constructing things, I really would love you to to maybe give some advice to people who are setting off in a writing career because, you know, being unafraid to sort of, you know, create characters that are complex and maybe do things that are societally not considered to be um, acceptable or or anything else along those lines. How do you get to that kind of richness? What do people need to do to access these kinds of unafraid forms of writing or to to kind of unearth vulnerabilities that allow people to even access that idea?
1: Yeah, I, I always appreciate this question because I think there's this romantic idea of writing, that it's just something you can naturally do if you have an interesting story to tell, and that it's just a kind of God-given talent that comes from the heart. And, you know, there is, a, there is some truth to the idea that great creative writing um, requires a unique level of creativity. But I also think at the same time, creative writing is a skill that you can learn. And I know that for a lot of wannabe writers, you know, that sounds like a very conservative position, but I can, I can frame it, you know, through my scholarship, I can frame it in a way that will actually help people understand exactly what I'm talking about. So what I would say, for example, is what's the difference between open first-person perspective and closed third-person perspective? What's the difference between a metonym, an absolute metaphor, and a dead metaphor? What's the difference between fiction, autobiography, and autobiographical fiction? Now, is it really hard to believe that these are things you can learn, and if you learn them, you can apply them to your creative writing, and and if you apply it to your creative writing, your creative writing will get better. And so that's a way in which we can understand uh, creative writing as a skill that you can develop. Um, in terms of giving practical advice to our, our, you know, the budding writers who are hopefully listening to this interview, what I would say is that um, I, I, there's no way I can give a, you know, I can give a summary of <laughs> Just a... Just give
0: an entire a, lesson in a, two minutes. Yeah,
1: of a creative <laughs> writing degree. But, but what I did do um, in 2016 was I wrote an essay Called Bad Writer for the Sydney Review of Books. It's free. Anyone can jump on the Sydney Review of Books website right now and grab it. Um, and the essay is basically looks at some bad attitudes and bad habits of cre- uh, uh, that come with being creative writing, uh, come with being a creative writer, and then it gives some. Tri- it tries to give some pragmatic and practical skills and advice on how to develop your creative writing through through the art of um, research and development as a, as a creative writer. And so I, I encourage people to jump on and read it. And the last point I would make is for any minority writers out there who might be listening who are interested in uh, developing their writing careers, you know, you can jump on the Sweatshop website. That's the literacy movement that I run in Western Sydney. Uh, the website is sweatshop.ws. Flick me an email. And, uh, you know, I'm always happy to have a conversation and uh, to support you know, this new generation of, of diverse writers who, who, want to, um, who want to make a contribution to Australian literature.
0: Yeah, in the last minute or so of the of the interview, I'd love you just to... You did mention Sweatshop earlier, just to kind of remind people uh, what, it, what you do there, but also, uh, obviously, you're Sydney-based, whether there's an ability for people around the rest of the country to access any of the information or, or services or things that you, you do or produce...
1: Thank you. So, um, uh, so what is Sweatshop? It is a literacy movement devoted to empowering people of colour and Indigenous people through reading and writing and critical thinking. Um, we produce uh, publications, we do writers' festival events, we do mentoring, we have workshops, we have writers' collectives. Um, you can jump on the website, sweatshop.ws, Um, And in terms of us being a a Sydney-based, yes, we are based in Western Sydney, but we are a national movement. We are devoted to supporting diverse literature across the country, and we've had the wonderful privilege of working with and publishing diverse writers from all over Australia, literally every single state. And so... If there are any, you know, people listening uh, who are interested in our work or who are even just not necessarily writers, but who are readers who are interested in some of the diverse publications that we have been producing, I absolutely encourage you to jump online and check our website out and follow us on social media as well.
0: Yeah, it's really great because I guess, you know, there, there is, for example, the Wheeler Centre introduced the Next Chapter Awards, but, I mean, even accessing the kind of idea of, of writing, if you've come from a English uh, language other than English background, you know. How do you even get access? How do you even see people like yourself represented? I think those kind of hurdles... I mean, I've certainly been at writers' events with... Uh, with writers on the stage and, and kids in the audience who see someone up there that looks like them and sounds like them but is a writer and they hadn't even thought of that as a career I remember one instance a writer being kind of mobbed afterwards and everyone's asking how much they earn <laughs> and I was like that's the one question you don't ask
1: but don't ask if the answer's not very good for writers unfortunately what, what I would say and look I, I have to make this plea uh, it, is a, it is a tough time for writers in Australia at the moment our writers Festival are being cancelled, um, our bookshops are being closed and you know that's the main way that books are sold in Australia is people just enjoying wandering around their local bookstore and so the best thing that um, Australian readers can do right now is is order, um, is, is actually buy and read uh, in literature and, and in particular during the the uh, rise of anti-Asian violence in the lead-up to the September 11, uh, anniversary of September 11, um, in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, I, I strongly encourage people to especially seek out Indigenous and, and, um, and culturally and linguistically diverse literature.
0: Well, thank you so much, uh, Mohammed, for all of your time today and for that excellent note to leave things on. I really appreciate you joining me today on Backstory.
1: Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I always like to finish by saying, once again, salamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Michael Muhammad Ahmed. Uh, and I would like to recommend his book, uh, The Other Half of You, which is out now through Hachette. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7.